You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hi, Future Sarah here, and welcome to part two of episode two of the Interactome. In part one, we talked about the biology of cancer cells, what they are, how they work, and where they come from. We recommend listening to that episode before this one if you haven't already. In part two, we talk more about what it's like to do cancer research in a lab and how treatments are developed. Without further ado, take it away, past Sam. So like we've been talking a lot about like um, how cancer works, but you were saying like, oh, we don't necessarily know all of these answers, but I think one thing that we can talk about or you all can talk about is what it's like to actually do this research. So what's it like to actually try to treat cancer? Or to, to make drugs to treat cancer, because none of us are doctors. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's actually re- something really interesting to talk about. Because I think when I, um, when I was first interested in research, I was just like, how are you able to kind of, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting concept to think, how can you get from being in a lab where everything is sterile and you're at a bench and you imagine people in white lab coats and wearing goggles to getting a uh, treatment that you give in a clinic to patients. Um, And so in my um, experience, so I'm currently working um, on targeting a certain protein and knocking down the expression of that protein and seeing what happened to happens to cancer cells so what we do is essentially we have cancer cells that we've taken from patients um, and we grow those in dishes we literally have an incubator and um, you know thank you to scientists many years back for optimizing for realizing you know what are optimal conditions and basically we grow human derivative like derivatives of human cancer cells in dishes and then um, you know, change the expression levels of proteins or, you know, and Joe does different things to cancer cells. Um, and then we measure the changes. So we see if the cells stop growing or if they grow at a more rapid rate. I also work with mouse models. So mice are used often in cancer research. So it's kind of like you work in cells and if it works, then you move to mouse models um, and anything in mouse models is kind of like the, the step before work in mice is kind of the step before clinical trials. Um, so essentially I do a lot of cell culture, a lot of work with mice and yeah. What about you, Joe? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, whatever I, I guess me, like for me, uh, maybe it's it'd be helpful to share with everyone a bit about like just what my my day is like day by day, uh, just in the lab. Like I, I get in there at like nine, sometimes ten, really depends. Um, 
I get in, I check my cells, so I go in and see how my cancer cells are doing. Like uh, I have cells and dishes for my experiments too. I keep like stocks um, where I'll actually like, um, like I'll have like extra cells for all my experiments just growing. Um, I'll just see how they're doing. Um, see if they need, I need to replenish their media, which you could tell like if it, the media is more yellow, it means that you need to replace it, uh, things like that. Uh, and then I'll go to, uh, to my, my lab bench to start uh, my uh, basic uh, non, oh, uh, yeah, uh, maybe I should explain what media is. Uh, media is like the, it's basically like broth almost like that, that literally derived from like, um, like bones and things like that. Uh, that is basically, it literally is like just the food for your cancer cells. Uh, the, our cancer cells, they, they like to like, uh, yeah, uh, they, um, they like to live in, uh, basically juice almost. Um, and if they don't get that, they're very unhappy. Um, it's very interesting how a lot of the the cell lines that we've derived from humans are very very finicky without their their uh their, this media um but in humans they're very very tough um uh, so that's what yeah so i i always make the joke that like why am i cancer like why am i cancer cells being so difficult when they're in a dish like they're they're such brats they're like if you don't give me this specific type of media with these specific growth factors then i'm gonna die <laughs> But when they're in humans, they're like, you know, they've taken their pre-workout and they're ready to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's still a lot that remains to be understood about cancer. And also, uh, there's a lot of questions about um, what is the right model or like like basic of cancer is um, like for our experiments. So, for example, like things like cells in a, in a Petri dish versus organoids, which are basically like um just cell like cancer cells but just um more in like a, a 3d shape rather than a, like a flat surface on a dish or things like that so from my perspective as someone who doesn't work with anything more complicated than a bacterial cell wouldn't an organoid be better like just inherently like like wouldn't that be like the better model no matter what you're doing uh, it yeah uh, it's just harder to take care of so it's it's a lot harder to work with it's a lot more intensive and so it's a question of like um to like what do you need to use to answer your question so for example if you're only looking at like how a specific protein uh, mediates uh, the effect of your drug on cancer cell death which is my case um all i really need is um just like cells that express that protein and that's it uh it doesn't matter what um whether they're in a um like on a flat thing, a flat surface or in a 3D shape. But for other cases where if you want to, for example, model uh, like tumor vasculature or moder model those like uh, blood vessels or uh, things like that, in addition to just cancer, cancer cells, like maybe having a 3D uh, culture is really good. Um, but a, dis a big disadvantage of um, really both of these models, since they're not actually like humans, is that they're they're not humans we don't know exactly if like the, the the like when we see the organoid die or if we see like the cancer cells on the flat dish die whether that means that if we treat with the same drug that we've treated these two models with uh cancer cells in humans will also die um, yeah as 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 a listener i'm like hmm okay so why do we trust you then like why <laughs> 
yeah. I mean, so so. And I guess isn't that part of like the drug development process? Yeah. And I just remember seeing a, a comic at one point being like, you know, when someone says, you know, such and such a thing will kill cancer cells in a petri dish, and the guy, the comic's just like, so will a handgun. I mean, it's, <laughs> so it's true. Like you, you like. Oh, go ahead, Sam. Sorry. No, I mean, I was just gonna say, like, like, yeah, we continue essentially. Like, how how can we tell the difference between it, it will kill anything or it will kill a cancer cell and not something else? Yeah, I it uh the biggest like you can really there are a lot of things that um can be demonstrated to kill cancer cells or other things like in not humans, but if you want to kill cancer cells only, um, effectively in humans, the only way to really know for sure, um, is to test it in clinical trials, um, and there there's a reason that so many, um, so many, like cancer discoveries or things like that um like in research papers and things like that don't end up becoming like a cancer treatment or things like that it's really really hard to like if you have a drug that works in your cell culture um, it's really hard to um, oftentimes get that to translate to full humans yeah and i mean Um, i think that's why um there is such I know in our previous episode we talked about the peer review process and you know uh, I, th- I think it was Sam who said you know it, the cool thing about science is you can say I did this one thing and then everyone else is like okay well prove it to me and show me specifically why that works or why it doesn't work and I think that is why in cancer research we have multiple models before even thinking about going to clinical trials mm-hmm. um, you know, we test, for example, in my in my case for my research project, we're testing what happens to cancer cells when we knock down a certain protein. And then we're also, we're testing it in patient-derived cells. So cells that haven't, we have cells that have been growing in culture in the cell juice under very specific conditions for a long time. And then we have uh, more recently, uh, you know, patient-derived cells. So these have just been taken out of patients. We put them in a dish, and then we treat them with... Um, then we knock down our protein, for example. And then we also, once we've validated that and done a lot of work at that level, then we take it to mouse models. So I think that's a key um, step before going to clinical trials, is that we test these uh, specific targets um, in mice, because mice are, obviously, mice and humans are not uh, exact replicas, but it's a very well, one of the best uh, models we have. Yeah, uh, I think I, I should just apologize to our listeners, because I think I kind of came off as like, uh, a few minutes ago, was saying like, yeah, the only thing that works is clinical trials. I mean, like, yeah, to a degree, like, you only know that something works with something if you definitely test it there, but you can get closer to um, knowing whether something actually works or not. So, uh, like doing all these things that Lauren just mentioned, like those, those are absolutely critical. And uh, I just want to apologize uh, if I came off as uh, saying that that's not true. And and uh, just kind of going off of something Lauren said there, it's like you're saying, oh, these cells grow in like. Uh, in media for a while, but like that can happen for quite a long time, can't it? Yes, it can actually. 
Um, and I wanted to mention this earlier, but um, I think briefly, and we can go more into ethics um, in the next episode or in later episodes, but um, one really important woman by the name of Henrietta Lacks um, has her cells almost all over the world, probably at this point all over the world, helping out in labs. And there's a lot of extensive history behind that and unethical treatment and a bunch of racism and really not so great things. Um, and I think that that's also important to just acknowledge and keep in mind as we move forward into researching more cancer treatments, especially these more specific immunotherapies, and kind of remember the past and then look towards the future and make sure we don't make those same mistakes. Um, personally, at this point, I've never done cancer research blatant, so I've never worked with human patient cancer cell lines. Um, so I'm actually curious for Lauren and Joe, um, what is the process like these days of getting that consent from the patients and making sure that those cells and those cancer lines are okay to use? Um, I think it really, usually what happens, like the most important thing, um, and I am I'm not a doctor here, um, and I will not claim to be one, um, but I can share information based on what I know. Uh, the most important thing is that before a tumor is um, taken for any testing, um, pa patients must give informed consent, uh, meaning that they know that their tumor is actually, like normally how you'll get it is you'll go in for surgery. Um, a lot of the times, um, and you'll have the like the tumor removed surgically, and it'll be put in like a little tube or something, and then frozen um, in liquid nitrogen, which is really really cold, um, and then given to the scientists who are who have already previously agreed to work on understanding this tumor, um, and so yeah, I think the biggest thing is that. Um, patients whose tumors are being taken for testing um, are they're, I, they're supposed to be giving their informed consent, meaning that they understand um, what it's going to be used for and why. Um, and there, there have been cases where that hasn't happened and that was like particularly in the past. Um, so for example, um, with the like what happened with Henrietta Lacks, her tumor was taken. Um, for scientific use without her consent. Um, and so it like that is that was previously one of the, and that is one of the biggest ethical issues with obtaining um, patient samples. but in the vast majority of cases, like consent is obtained, forms are signed. and if they're not, uh, then legal action should be followed uh, because it's very important that, uh, patients whose uh, tumors are being used for scientific research, like con consent in the first place to the work. But basically, sorry, after after that long rant, um, the uh, tumor is usually then sent over to the lab that has agreed to do that work uh, for the and the specific test that they've already agreed to do. Um, yeah, I think um, one other thing that might be interesting to chat about here is like just what causes cancer, like. I think um, it's there. There's it's kind of it's it's that's always a hot topic, um, and I think we it's it's going to be hard to cover it comprehensively just because 
we're still trying to understand it. Um, but I think we can get into it a bit. Um, I, I think, honestly, just the most interesting way to start with this and something that, like, I think is something you can do something about is to talk about where Henrietta Lacks got cancer from. Um, so uh, there's a great, well, I don't know, there's a, there's a book out there that a lot of biologists read called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it details a lot of this. And um, she, uh, her cancer cells was, I believe, cervical cancer. And yeah. the most common cause of cervical cancer up until recently was HPV. So human papillomavirus, papillomavirus, which is a sexually transmitted disease that uh, just it's so viruses can do all sorts of different things. Um, if you've seen our what is a virus video from like last year, um, uh, HPV has a nasty habit of sticking genetic information directly into uh, a, a patient's genome. And then that can just cause cancer because it just wreaks havoc on DNA. Um, if I'm understanding that correctly, I'm neither a virologist nor a uh, cancer biologist, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, st sticking, sticking pieces of DNA from a virus genome into a human genome where you shouldn't be sticking in random pieces of DNA can definitely mess up the process. Uh, and, and and just to stress, because people talk about this for other reasons right now that are not scientifically accurate, that's that's very rare. It's very very rare to have something sticking stuff randomly into your genome. Most it's most things do not do that. Um, yeah. But certain viruses will do that. Yes. Um, yeah, I think the uh, as of now, um, and feel free to jump in here, uh, Lauren in particular. Um, it seems that the major the major cause of why cells just start to grow rapidly and evolve into cancer um, when they shouldn't be doing that is the accumulation of mutations in genes that help rein in growth um, or in uh, accumulation of mutations in genes that stimulate growth. Um, but the oftentimes why those mutations occur really varies. Um, and there are a lot of different factors that can contribute to that. Uh, so, for example, there's a um, like people after um, like at Ground Zero uh, at the World Trade Center, um, a large portion of them, like so, for example, people who were in the building when uh, it collapsed, first responders, things like that, um, because of all the, the the carcinogens or cancer-causing chemicals that they were exposed to, um, they had a higher. A lot of them had a higher, uh, or this group of people had a higher uh, prevalence of cancer um, years after relative to the normal population. Um, and Oh, go, yeah, go ahead, Sam. Well, to talk about prevalence, I mean, something that I think strikes me as a biologist and like kind of just listen to how people talk about things, like everything in biology is a numbers game. It's a, it's, a, it's odds, you know, it's, it's rolling the dice essentially. And cancer is the odds of these genes breaking. I mean, that's how you get cancers. Like, so what, what increases the odds of that? And so like, you know, to be a little bit ridiculous. I mean, you could, you know, be smoke 10 cigarettes a day while working at the asbestos and benzene factory and never get cancer. It would be unlikely because all of those things are carcinogens. Uh, but your odds of getting cancer go up, but it doesn't guarantee that you'll get it. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I think kind of piggybacking off of that and, you know, I forget if it was said already, but mutations in general are random and it is 
just a numbers game. So like these things, carcinogens, mutagens, anything in the environment really, um, even sunlight, right? We talk about sunlight, that's why you got to wear your sunscreen. Like even that puts you just at an increased risk of having some form of mutation one day that just happens to turn into a cancer. And I think, you know, largely for this talk, we've been talking about metastatic cancer or malignant forms, but they're also benign forms of cancer, which from my knowledge just mean cancer that is still localized to the site where it originally developed or where that first cell originally mutated. So, you know, in terms of prognosis and outcome um, of people who have cancer, that can also vary. I had a question about that. Um, is it okay if I ask it? Oh yeah, go, go right ahead. Go right um, is, it, is it known what makes a tumor benign or metastatic? From my knowledge, I believe it, if it has left the original site, it is deemed metastatic. Um, Lauren, I don't know if you know the official definition, but I, I believe that's what it yeah, is. You got it. Yeah. It's, it's if they acquire mutations that, um, Oh yeah. I was more wondering, to, like... um, like, are you, are you, are you asking like how like benign tumors become metastatic? Or I'm at, yeah, I'm kind of wondering like what exactly about, um, like, if you have a cancer cell, how does it kind of decide whether or not it's going to be benign or metastatic? I can't say it. Metastatic. 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 Yeah. Thank you. I got you. Um, Joe, do you want to talk about this? Uh, I, to, to be honest, um, I don't know too much about, like, the molecular, like, the molecular mechanisms that make or help a cancer cell decide whether it's gonna spread to other parts of the body or not like i i that's just not my area of work in cancer research um but there are for sure um certain molecular changes that do happen um so they're like cancer cells um will change their like they're basically like the way that or the amount like the proteins that are on the outside of themselves so that they can like get through the blood vessels more easily um and things like that or like more effectively like crawl around and just hang out in yeah, blood essentially, to other parts of the body yeah it's there's a process called emt which is um without going into uh too much detail it's basically how uh cancer cells can suppress certain features that allow them to uh, become mobile and to move. And so it's the idea of, um, I think cancer cells essentially are always trying to acquire um, genetic changes that allow them to become more aggressive, to grow more rapidly and to divide. And so in some cases, our body is able to, you know, shut this down and in other cases they evade the checks and balances and so i think whether cells um whether cancer cells are uh, able to change over from being benign to uh, malignant or um become metastatic is really also in a sense a numbers game um 
in that, you know, they're trying to accumulate as many genetic changes that will allow them to become metastatic. And in most cases, they can. And, and it's also, it takes time. So originally, you may be diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, but with time, you know, there'll be one of these breast cancer cells that is able to kind of break through that will acquire genetic changes that allow them to um, move through the blood and to different parts in the body. Yeah, and I'm going to jump in here too. And I feel like the more, you know, the more cancer cells mutate, the more wacky and different they become from normal cells just in the body. And I think this is also why immunotherapy is such an intriguing topic is because we can use the immune system, right? Theoretically, we can use that immune system to detect foreign particles or signals of any kind that these wonky cancer lines are releasing. And so if we're able to do that within our body, we can actually use our own body's immune system to fight said cancer, even if it's metastatic. And so, um, one therapy that's out there that kind of relates to this is cancer vaccines. So antigen versus antibody really quickly. So an antigen is any foreign particle that the body says, hey, this is foreign. An antibody is actually a protein that you and I would create in response to a whole bunch of immune system um, pathways and regulations that initially detect said antigen. So we can use those and a lot of different pathways there. And we'll, we can go more into immunotherapy another time too, because that would take a while. But at its core, we can use the immune system to really detect and hopefully fight in the future um, these really nasty cancer lines. That sounds really cool. Oh yeah, I think there's um, there's definitely, I th I think we've come very far in terms of like what we know about cancer and how to treat it and things like that. Uh, we've definitely like, for example, uh, breast cancer um, is now you're if you get it you're significantly more likely to survive than you once were, um, but there's there's still a lot of a long way to go. Like for example. Um, there are certain kinds of cancers like um, glioblastoma, which is a specific kind of brain cancer. Uh, it's the most common kind, um, to my knowledge. It, it really doesn't have any good treatments for it besides very toxic chemotherapies. Um, we need a good targeted therapy that could um, selectively kill these brain cancer cells while leaving normal brain cells and other kinds of cells intact. And we just don't have that. So there's, there's definitely a lot that needs to be done, but I think uh, I'm just very, very excited about um, what the future holds in this field. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully we'll get better at understanding cancer because um, it's this big, complicated thing. And I think that that's maybe if you could take away one thing from this episode, it's that cancer is it is it's a really complicated disease, and like like I mean I'm. We, we here like had questions like those were legit questions we were asking each other like there's there's stuff like I hear about and then that's about as far as it goes because it, it's a very complicated system and um we'll be um I, I guess Lauren and Sarah can talk more about this but like we're going to be posting more information about this um 
for you all to look at because um, I think it's to better understand these sorts of complicated diseases, it's good to kind of get a idea for how to read about and how to um, better understand these things as they change. And they, they're changing rapidly. I mean, there are treatments. I know people who have gotten treatments that 10 years ago would have been absurd. So, um, or not absurd, but like they were just drawn on a whiteboard somewhere like Harvard or something. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to know, but hopefully you learned a bit from this. I mean, I certainly learned a bit, um, just listening to everyone else here. Um, like I said, I mean, I'm not really a cancer researcher. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like the field of cancer biology is really, uh, making significant and really exciting strides. Um, and so hopefully we obviously can't cover this all in a podcast episode, but hopefully if you read one of our digests, um, we were going to dive a little bit deeper into more specific cancer therapies. So specifically immunotherapies we're going to look at, um, you'll be able to learn a little bit more. And I think that, you know, no matter who you are, cancer is something that affects you. You know, whether it affects you personally, a family member, someone you know, at any point in your life, you will come across at least one person um, who has had cancer. And as horrible as the disease is, I think all the treatments out there and even just ideas for future treatments out there, um, there is a lot to still have hope for. Thanks for listening. We are now hosted on most major podcast platforms, including Audible, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure to subscribe. We should also be on Apple Podcasts soon. For more content, you can follow us on YouTube at Interactive Media, read our blog post about cancer at interactomedia.org, and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at The Interactome, and on Instagram at Interactome underscore media. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and science in general, as well as what you'd like to see next. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. I'm really excited for what we have planned.